Are you gay? Geeky? Just enjoy hearing your good Judy's dish about the latest in pop culture? Well, then you're in luck. The boys of Flame On are here for you. In every episode, we discuss the topics that entrance us. Whether it's comics, TV, movies, drag queens, or video games, we've got you covered. So, if you're ready for your gay and geeky slice of pop culture life, then sit back and get ready to Flame On! Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Magician Nelson Lugo. Hi, I'm nerdcore rapper Shafer the Dark Lord. We're best friends who hate each other's guts. And we co-host the Epic Podcast. A monthly show in which we discuss comic books, video games, television, movies, our debilitating emotional problems, and Batman. So much Batman. That's the Epic Podcast on the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Be safe, internets. Bye. Seriously, so much Batman. Flame On is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. And with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geeky programming, visit nerdyshow.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Flame On. I am Pat, your talking bearskin rug, and we have an extra special treat for you for our microsode this month. Actually, our second of this month, because August has extra weeks in it that some of the other months don't have. You get two microsodes this month. I am being joined by our first-time co-host. He has been name-dropped by me on our uh, other episodes before. But he is now getting to actually be on the show and is helping me with this very special interview. We have Jay Abbott joining us as a co-host. What's going on, Jay? Hey, I'm happy to be here. Very nice. <laughs> uh, and Jay is uh, is another Florida uh, geek. He is in South Florida. So when this interview came around, I felt a connection to the material and that Jay was the proper person to ask to bring on to this interview because our very special guest is Scott Lobdell, writer of many, many things, including a lot of extremely big X-Men stories in the 90s, Generation X, and Happy Death Day. Scott Lobdell, how are you doing? How's it going? Let's go back to the beginning. What got you into writing comic books i you know a lot of guys like wade and um 
uh, Busick and those guys can tell you what uh, Superman had for lunch in uh, <laughs> Action 23 or something. And I was never that guy. When I got into combos, I got into combos because I was uh, in the hospital a lot when I was in high school. I had uh, my lung kept collapsing, and everybody would bring me comic books to read because I was too young for, I guess, Playboys and stuff. So they bought comic books. And the very, very, very first time I read a comic book, I was like, you know, my reaction wasn't like, oh, this is a strange world. It was, wow, somebody, somebody's got to do this for what is this? Okay, there's words, there's pencils and inks, and wow, somebody has to do it. So my whole, my whole initiation in comics was, this seems like the coolest job in the entire world, you know, to be able to tell stories. And I, uh, went on to go to college for psychology. And one day I was like, you know, everybody in the world has a problem and I don't want to listen to everybody's problems forever. So I was like, bad attitude for psychologists. So then I was, uh, you know, light of psychology is, um, uh, what is it? Uh, conflict resolution. So I was like, well, comic books are, I mean, every, every story has to introduce a conflict and have to resolve it. So. I started my, uh, I started pursuing that. And, uh, it's funny because even when I very, very, very first started, I was like, you know, I'm going to do comics for three years and then I'm going to do like, you know, TV and movies. And at the time, it was kind of an absurd thought because there weren't really a lot of, uh, uh, movement back and forth between the industries. But now it seems, you know, like you need a, uh, TV show first to get a comic book. Now it seems to work for some companies. Um, you know, like I look at like a Guggenheim and stuff. I mean, he's great. I love Mark. And, uh, but it's like, you know, him bouncing from, you know, TV to comic, comics to TV. Uh, I wish I could do that. So, um, so I'm envious of him. But I mean, that's like, uh, we see a lot of that. But at the time, it was kind of a, a fanciful idea on my part. To, these comic books to break here i am <laughs> awesome how so how did you end up on the x titles when you went to when you were with marvel well i've been writing for about three years on uh marvel comics presents and what happened was i, I tried to break in for about six years and i got a uh, entire wall of rejection letters and uh I had a bunch of rejections. So I, um, Marvel Comics Presents started and they were doing these eight page stories. And I found out that the editor was the terrible, terrible job for the editor because he had to get approval for an eight page Daredevil story or an eight page Wolverine story or an eight page Captain America story. But because they were only eight pages, he couldn't really do anything interesting with them. So he would get the writer to write it and then they'd give it to the editor and the editor would be like, ugh. Why? Oh, Daredevil, what is it? What is, you know, like, it's not about anything. And Captain America, like, they had to, they were torn between not being able to write stories that were about anything or trying to write stories that were about something that would get nixed because it had to be something that took place in, you know, you couldn't do a, uh, an uh, issue where Captain America's shield melted because then they'd be like, well, you can't go back to Captain America and be like, here's your character back. But no shield. And so uh, I was looked at it and I'm like, huh. So there's something out called 
contest of the champions where it was uh, superheroes from all over the world. So I went to the editor and I'm like, how about if I do the Global Village series? He's like, what's the Global Village series? And I said, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it would be a bunch of standalones with uh, Shamrock and American Eagle and Arabian Night and any other character that no editor wants to touch because no one was going to be, hey, Shamrock's my character. And so uh, <laughs> I did that. But what that allowed me to do was I was able to write these like really, uh, in some cases, pretty deep stories about uh, these characters so that by the time you read the eight pages, you're like, oh, my God, I never thought that that crappy uh, Shamrock character had such a uh, uh, sad origin. And, you know, and I remember one time uh, I did a lockjaw story and I walked around the offices. Anytime I got any gig at all, I walk around and go, hey, got the lockjaw story. <laughs> we'll be like, wow, you must have really wrestled for that one. And uh, so, But the thing is, uh, I took it and I, I set uh, lockjaw at this story at a Five Alarm Fire and how he went and he saved the fireman. It's a really sweet story. And so uh, I was walking down the halls one day and the editor, Ralph Macchio, came up and he's like, uh, I got to tell you, Scott, I, mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but that was the best Lockjaw story I ever read. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, that was the only Lockjaw story <laughs> you ever read. Okay. Um, and so what that did was it allowed me this sheer volume of work that showed, you know, that I could do comedy, I could do sad, I could do scary, I could do. So when um, Chris left the X-Men and uh, John Byrne uh, put his foot down that he wanted two weeks of uh, two weeks with each script, it put the editor in chief in a bind because the books at the time were being done by Wills and Jim Lee in San Diego. And they would, uh, you guys don't remember this. They used to have these things called faxes. <laughs> <laughs> they would, uh, the, what happened was is Christmas, uh, is the night of the Christmas party and Bob Harris, who I'd only spoken to once before in my life. Oh. We'd gotten in a fight over, uh, the beast. And, you know, my friend was like, uh, you shouldn't piss off Bob Harris because he's the X-Men editor. And I was like, uh, the likelihood of me ever writing the X-Men is so infinitesimally slim that I think I'm okay. <laughs> you know, and uh, so only the second time he talked to me, he uh, came into the uh, editor's office and I was there doing work late that night. And because uh, it was the night of the X-Men, I mean, sorry, night of the Christmas party. And he comes in and goes, uh, Scott, walk with me. I'm like, oh, okay. So I walk the whole length of the offices and we get in the room and he goes behind his desk and he pulls out uh, 22 pages of faxes. And he goes, uh, 22 pages in 24 hours, can you do it? And I was like, yes. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, if it's terrible, everybody's going to go, well, you know, we only had 24 hours. And it was good. People were going to go, holy shit, look what he did in 24 hours. And uh, it turned out to be really good. But what I didn't know at the time is that he 
when I looked at the faxes, there were about 10 finished pages. And then there were like circles with an R and an X with a W, which meant Rogue is standing here and Wolverine is standing here. And there was no plot. There was a <laughs> story. And this went on for about four months. And uh, I would just get these faxes with two weeks to go before it had to be at the printer. And at the time, the book was selling, you know, almost a, nearly a million copies. So you couldn't, it's not like it is today where uh, it seems they start a series and then it fizzles out and you never see, or, you know, like it gets delayed a month and then two months and six months. And then you're like, whatever happened to that series? <laughs> With this, it was, uh, you couldn't even move from one quarter to the other quarter. You couldn't miss a month because if you missed a month, it meant, you know, millions of dollars for the company. So, you know, they couldn't, uh, so that's how it was done. I would get these faxes and they would have a vague idea what the story is and they would send it to me. <laughs> okay, here it goes. And, uh, but the thing too is, is I had been a, a stand-up comedian for five years at that point. And the thing about stand-up comedy is you don't get to, uh, be doing your routine and then be like, you know what? You know that joke that I told five months ago? I'm going to try that again and see if I can. You know, you just have to, you know, you just got to do what you do and trust what you're doing on stage. And that's what happened with the X-Men. It was like I didn't have any, uh, you know, people would say to me, like, were you nervous about taking it? I had no time to be nervous. I only had time to do the job. So, And then after, uh, after six months, uh, it was decided that Fabian would get, uh, they had promised Fabe the X-Men book. And at that point, uh, they said, well, Fabe, you can do X-Men and Fallistan on Fanny. That's fantastic. You guys say it was funny because people would always be like, uh, like I, like I said about the argument with Bob, my goal into getting co into comic books was I wanted to be the next X-Men. Like the X-Men was number one. And I'm like, I'm going to knock the X-Men off its pedestal. I'm going to be the next number one. And uh, the first series I got was Alpha Flight. And I was like, you know what? I, I'll, you know, when X-Men started, it was bi-monthly. You know, people aren't really paying that much attention to Alpha Flight. I can do this. I can make Alpha Flight big. And so when I got the X-Men, it was a, it was a surprise because it had never, you know, I mean, I, you know, I have a pretty good imagination and I can picture winning an Emmy someday, but I would never have ever imagined that I'd be writing the X-Men for, you know, even one issue, let alone seven years that's incredible so you are responsible for many of the storylines with the x-men that formed not just mine but obviously jay's uh childhood or adolescence and i know jay there is a there's a particular storyline that impacted you immensely and uh i i think uh you had some uh comments and questions oh. about that you wanted to jump into 
I have, uh, honestly, I have so many questions. Uh, I'm, an, I'm a kid that grew up on the X-Men. I started reading in the middle of the Executioner storyline well, when you were in charge, which is probably not the best place to jump in. So I like instantly started grabbing back issues. Uh, there was absolutely, yeah, it's, uh, I, I really wasn't into superhero comics at that point. The X-Men was my doorway into that. If you can even call them superheroes, uh, they're more or less, you know, uh, more uh, marginalized minorities. But uh, I love your approach to them, the way you kind of kept them very grounded. But what I think Patrick is talking about, and I've often joked about this on my Facebook, is that there was one particular issue of the Uncanny X-Men that traumatized me as a kid. Oh, wow. okay. <laughs> and it was issue 303, which okay. is, for people who aren't familiar, that's the issue where Ileana Rasputin dies of the legacy virus. Uh-huh. And uh, for, you know, for people who don't know, legacy virus is basically an allegory for the HIV-AIDS crisis. And it was a storyline about this little girl who contracted the virus and they tried everything to keep her alive. And it's just so depressing, but so brilliantly written. Uh, when I talk to people about my favorite comics of all time, that's usually one of the ones I go to still to this day. And I know other people say that, too, that they love that issue. It's um, one of their favorites. Kudos on that. <laughs> Thank you. You know what it is? It's funny. I really, uh, there have been a few times when I think I've gotten people to like uh, tear up at a comic book. Yeah. I know, uh, I know in about two, uh, two months, uh, Red Hood number 27 is going to come out, and that's going to be like a bowling, uh, I mean, a bowling experience. But that was a very sad uh, issue. But it's also like if you chart my, uh, X-Men run, there are a bunch of issues that would like, uh, they'd have the big event. Yeah. People would get oh, big event, and they would get really angry. But then I was like, you know what? After Almost after the, all the big events, I always had that kind of like slow down, just character story. And I remember one time, uh, around the time uh, Scott and Gene got engaged, uh, his name is uh, Ski. He's over at DC now, but he was at Marvel at the time. He's a marketing guy. He comes down and goes, I gotta say, um, Scott hasn't thrown a punch in the X-Men in four issues. Like, no one's used their powers. They haven't gotten any fights. And Bob's like, oh, you know, we, we can change that. He goes, no, I, but oddly, I dig it. I kind of... <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I did, uh, I, I did a lot of... Uh, I do like I mean, I certainly can do action venture, but I do like the stories that just slow down to crawl and just really deal with the people, you know? Well, that's, yeah. That's a huge, like, that That was always huge with the X-Men was that, especially for me, well, and speaking for myself, that the character-driven plots for this team of misfits, and it, it was always that thing that really struck home for me and that was what kept me reading i got into it i think in 91 i think it was with jim lee's x-men number one was around the time that i got into x-men in general and then started kind of like jaded going and grabbing back issues and finding all these stories and it just seeing like executioner song seeing age of apocalypse seeing the entire legacy virus come to fruition and, and start to ravage the team and it was always those relationships and those 
really character-driven plots that were huge for me. Like the action always, is always good. When you've got these big battles and you've got these big grandiose events, it's it's fantastic. But seeing how that team who isn't family was still family was huge for me. And it shaped a lot of my growing up. And that is always, that's something that I still carry to, to this day with me. Well, you know what's interesting is that uh, at the end of, uh, I mean, towards the end of my time at Marvel, uh, we were doing this Heroes, uh, Heroes Return. And, uh, you know, they were trying to bring in other, you know, divisions instead of like just the X-Men. We were trying to like, you know, make events that were uh, specific to all of the universe. And we were sitting around and uh, they were like saying, okay, well, for the return of uh, the heroes, it'll be cool if Franklin has to decide between saving the universe or uh, saving his family. You know, and that'll be cool. Like save the alternate reality or save his family. And I go, you know, I don't know, honestly, like the whole point of uh, Marvel has always been, you know, like the world outside your window, as they say. And, you know, like to me, like Age of Apocalypse, yes, it was a giant world, but that whole world was predicated on one, one simple concept. What would the world be like without Charles Xavier? You know, and... And the idea that everybody who has been an X-Men or even an enemy of the X-Men was impacted as a result of that is what made Age of Apocalypse, you know, aside from the costumes that looked awesome and this, you know, the different roles the characters played, it was because it was so simple. It was, it was all predicated on uh, Charles not being there. Um, the notion that a, a kid has to choose between his parents and the universe was like, we have gotten so far off track of what makes a personal story, a bigger story or a bigger story, a personal story. Um, and, you know, I look at a lot of events and I see events that are like, you know, uh, I see events that I see a lot of events that have nothing to do with, uh, character anymore they're like plot events like you know i don't want to shit on anybody's story so i can't really say per se but i do think the reason why uh i don't i, I don't find them as uh appealing as they were i don't know i'll say this like you can look at a comic book from 30 20 years ago and be like oh my god that was you know amazing i felt it and i still feel it I don't see a lot of that in comic books these days, you know. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. Actually, one of the things I love about your run, you touched on it, is after the big events, like I remember specifically the Planks Covenant, if I'm saying that right. I, um, but right after that, they dealt with the whole idea of the school being demolished, Jubilee and the other kids having to go to the Massachusetts Academy. And those stories were great. And there really wasn't a lot of fighting or accident in them. There was a lot of characters that started Still remember the first issue after the Planks Covenant, uh, Jubilee and Archangel, who never really talked that much, had this like great moment, and I absolutely love that. I really kind of wish Marvel would go back to that type of storytelling. Right now, I feel like they're going from one big major crossover event to another one, and there's really no in between. There's not a lot of they keep on 
running in circles with character development. And that's one of the things I loved about your run was that you were really progressing the characters and moving them forward. You established uh, Jean Grey and Scott's relationship further from what Chris Claremont had done in X Factor and progressed Jubilee into being closer to a mature adult. I don't want to say a mature adult. Well, I was Jubilee was just like oh yeah what she was and then with that issue you're like oh okay I get it she's not kitty she's her own thing you know she was always kind of like this you know strange knockoff of kitty but like right together on the same panel you're like oh totally different characters um but you know what's funny too is like I don't know like towards the end of my run uh, when I was doing uh, extinction agenda and stuff uh, I like to me it was very clear like what I wanted to do, I always wanted to move the X-Men forward because like you know you guys read it at a certain time I read it at a certain time my favorite X-Men was always uh from like 96 to 105 you know with uh you know Thunderbird's brief appearance uh <laughs> Banshee, Colossus, Nightcrawler, you know, uh, Storm. But it was, you know, the first time Wolverine used his claws to, uh, you know, you know, when he was using the claws to like carve his initials and uh, table at Xavier's and stuff. Like, you know, like that group was my favorite. But I know that other people, uh, their favorite was when uh, they were in Australia or their favorite was when, you know, uh, they weren't even interesting until uh, Gambit came along to some people. You know, like, everybody has their own favorite run. And I think that was speaking to Chris's uh, genius. He really did. He was not afraid to change up that lineup and move people in and out. And uh, so I was trying to move people in and out. And really, what I was getting was one more pushback about, you know, I mean, you'll notice that as soon as I left, the instant that I left, uh, it was Kitty, Colossus, and Nightcrawler back in the book. And I was like, oh, boring. Like, you know, yeah, they were a favorite run of mine, but like, I want to see progression, you know, and now I look at the books and it's like, you know, I mean, I, I can't say because I'm only a casual uh, glancer. I haven't read uh, an X-Men book in years. Since uh, Josh brought back Colossus, because um, I was curious. Um, but like you say, um, Archangel and Jubilee having a conversation, like that's interesting. You know, all of a sudden you're like, you know, or uh, uh, Forge leaving Rogue, uh, I'm sorry, Forge leaving Storm. In that first issue, when I finally got a chance to uh, start writing it, they had said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, there's way too many characters. And I don't understand. Like, all I ever hear about is, uh, you know, Rogue and Storm and their love. And, the fine is, da, da, da. and I went back and said, they haven't spoken in four years, as near as I can tell. I mean, like, I don't know how they're the greatest love of each other's lives. You know, maybe it's all happening off panel, but I don't see it. And so, <laughs> so I felt that there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, I just feel there's so much to be done with, the dynamics of mixing characters and a lot of times I'll look and I'll see where uh, 
it seems like they have a plot and what they need in the plot is for this character this way and so that character is acting this way so that they can have, deal with this character and it's like well, okay that's a plot but that's not a character that's you know making your characters uh, bend to your plot and not the other way around but it does feel like they don't do a lot of comic books i kind of feel like red hood and the outlaws is kind of the closest i've come to writing x-men in the sense it's all really really character driven but on a bigger landscape bigger canvas but um but i look around and i just don't see a lot of comic books that that do what the uh, x-men used to do including the x-men you're absolutely right there they are not as character driven it's very much about plot and i mean i know marvel after what was it secret empire was it secret wars that or after secret empire they were on a like an 18 month uh no big event kind of mandate so that way it wasn't because it really was just going from one major line-wide crossover event to another major crossover event and it's it's helped a bit but at the same time like the x titles went back to they were trying to kind of recapture that nostalgia and do a little bit more of that like they x-men gold would throw in a couple of uh you know the the softball games and and do those types of things and it was it, it was fine it's been okay but the closest i think that they've come in my opinion has been x-men red with the return of gene gray bringing her back the original gene gray um and her being on a mission and having this idea to kind of try to help like make the world a better place and is they're introducing these characters in basically giving them each an issue it's not just okay all of a sudden we have this team and this is what we're doing they're trying to build it up and you're seeing more the character and who they are and why they are a part of this team that she's putting together you know so it's kind of a different take on it and it's it's it feels more like an old school take on a storyline versus what they've been doing lately well, I mean, it isn't like you talk about the publishers. It's an interesting question. Like, you know, you wonder how much is the publisher and how much is the editors and how much is the writers. You know, you get on a book and you're like, wow, you know, I'm writing. Uh, I finally get to write Captain America. I'm going to do uh, my Red Skull story. And it's like we've seen Red Skull. Yeah. We know that uh, we know that someone's bothering Captain America. And at the end of the issue, a limousine is going to pull up and the window is going to roll down. And, oh, my God. Oh, my God, it's the Red Skull. You know, it's like, we've seen it. Let's see something else. And I think that, like, so I don't know if it's editors not pushing writers, writers not pushing ideas, writers not challenging themselves. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but but well, I hear that they're... In terms of the uh, X-Men, I'm hoping that now that Disney is reacquiring their film rights, as odd as it sounds, I think that may end up having a pot. They may put more emphasis on the X-Books again. Because I feel like, I feel like that, um, I don't want to say they were sabotaging themselves, but it, it felt like they pushed them to the back because they didn't have the film rights. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know, but I, I felt like everything after second, I, I still read the X-Men and I felt like everything after second coming, which was a storyline from, I'm going to guess like 2012, 
they really haven't been doing much with the characters and they and they haven't really given them much of a consistent uh, creative team or writers and because that feels like they're going in all different directions it's like oh we'll give this writer the x-men for a year and a half and then we'll do a whole new creative team uh you know shortly after that maybe i'm rambling at this point but uh <laughs> but yeah <laughs> but yeah i, I kind of feel like uh, that um that a lot of the comics these days they've been uh especially at marvel they've been using them more or less it's just marketing tools for the movies so if um, a character in the movie, if, if a character is getting a movie, they decide to start emphasizing them in the comics, regardless of where the character was left off previously. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's um, I it, it I kind of I feel like it takes away a little bit from the character development too. I, mean, I don't. I mean, the whole thing is kind of odd. I, you know, like when I was, uh, I remember being on a plane in '92, I think it was, and. You know, I, this happened to me all the time. People be like, "Oh my God, oh my God, you write the X Men?" I'm like, "Yeah." They go, "Oh, I love the X Men. The X Men is my favorite. It is amazing. Rogue and Storm. Oh my God, I love them so much." And then they go, uh, "Are you in charge of the voices?" I go, "Well, I don't, I don't do the uh, comic book. I mean, I don't do the Saturday morning show. I only do the comic book." And they go. There's a comic book too, <laughs> you know, and that happened all the time. And so, like, you know, I was around for it. I saw the sales. There was no sales increase when the X Men, uh, you know, when the anim- animated show was happening. You know, like there was the only the only time I've ever seen a crossover. I think was the very first uh, Batman movie with Michael Keaton. I remember living in uh, Yonkers and they showed the movie and everybody poured out of that movie and ran into the uh, comic book store and just bought the crap out of anything Batman. And, but other than that, I mean, I've never, you know, like I've never, I don't think the X-Men, I don't think the Avengers sales go up because of the Avengers movies. And I don't think, uh, you know, an Ant-Man book is going to sell because, the Ant-Man movie came out or Daredevil is going to increase because people are watching Netflix. So I don't, you know, like, I think it's great that there is source material to feed other venues and that other venues are being more respectful of the source material. I think this notion that as an industry we're supposed to chase, uh, you know, chase the movie or chase the TV show that's taking the comic book adapting the stories and which is like you know like a, a bad tom and jerry you know which is like running around and i don't think it uh, i think we just need to get back to the idea of like just trying to write the best comics that we can and hopefully come up with storylines that people want to knock off for the next 20 years i mean to your point i think uh i would like to give people more credit but i just think they just don't really seem to know I do want to touch on one major, major thing, especially because we are a gay and geeky podcast. We have to talk about it. North Star. <laughs> Jake, it's all excited about this. You... Well, I haven't that, but, uh, but you go ahead. I'm, I'll, I'll get to that. Well, I have a few questions. Exactly. I, I figure I'll, I'll, I'll handle the North Star part. You can dig into the, <laughs> to the rest of it. Uh, so how did 
bringing Northstar out as uh, as a gay character? How did this come about, and how was this received? And like, it just the whole thing. How did this happen? Well, it started because I, when I took over the uh, when I took over Alpha Flight, I wanted it down to five members, and uh, you know, John Burton always uh, designed. Uh, North Star, when he created North Star, he created him as a gay character. And if you look at the his very first appearance, uh, you know, he's by a pool and he has all of these, you know, hot guys around him and it's just him and a bunch of hot guys in the pool. And it was all very, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, because they couldn't come out and say he was gay because at the time it just hadn't been done. And uh, so when I took over the character, I looked at the character and he was such a colossal dick. And I was like, why is this guy such a colossal dick? And I was thinking it's because he, if he was a big enough asshole, you wouldn't get to know him. And if you didn't get to know him, you wouldn't know who he really is. And so he, this was his defense mechanism. He just kept people away from him by projecting this idea of being this arrogant jerk. And I was like, you know, I, I want to get rid of that and see who he really is. And so I felt the way to do that was to have him uh, stop hiding behind uh, anything and just be himself and talk about who he was. And so uh, at the time they were doing, uh, at the time comic books always had inventory stories, which meant that you would write and draw a letter and color a story and have it all completely done and it would be put in a drawer. And then if something happened, instead of nowadays where they're like shipping, they would throw in this issue at the last second, you know, or if, you know, an artist was, uh, you know, artist's wife was having a baby and he couldn't do it. And so, okay, we'll give him a break. Fortunately, we have uh, the regular artist. We have this inventory story. So when it came time to do an inventory story for Alpha Flight, I said to the uh, editor, I, this is my thinking about North Star and I really want to just have him come out and talk about being gay. And uh, her name is Bobby Chase, and she has a brother who's gay. And she was like, that sounds great. That sounds like a great story. It sounds like a story that needs to, you know, that's a good way to move the character forward. And so we put it in the drawer and didn't think anything of it. And then uh, she went on to do Spirits of Vengeance uh, as the group editor. And so she, before she went, she plugged in the uh, North Star story. And uh, we really didn't think anything of it, um, I believe Peter had touched on a, a, a gay uh, AIDS-related story in uh, The Hulk with uh, M. Wilson or somebody. Um, so it wasn't like it was that taboo a subject. Like writing it, I didn't think, oh my God, the whole world was going to uh, <laughs> lose their shit. Um, but that's what happened. It came out and it was like... Uh, Everybody just really uh, got excited about it. And what was interesting to me is recently I did uh, I did Teen Titans where I had Bunker uh, as this gay, openly gay uh, Mexican teenager who uh, was uh, who never spent a, a minute of his life in the closet. He was just always who he was, and his family loved him, and his village loved him, and that's who he was. And when uh, he came out. There was all this press, and it was it felt very similar to uh, what happened with North Star. And what I thought was 
I won't say, I, I'm not going to use the word sad, but what I thought was odd is I was thinking, you know what, like, there was, there's a 20 year gap between North Star and Bunker. And I'm thinking, you know what, I, I hope to God I'm alive in another 20 years so that if I introduce another gay character, that there are no headlines and there's no story and there's no hoopla. And it's just like, he's just another, you know, gay character in comic books. You know, it'd be, you know, that's, uh, I hope where we get someday. I will tell you, I will tell you recently, I was in a, a, a Pally, a Paley Fest, which is where they have these people come out and, uh, uh, talk about their shows. And they were doing a reunion show for, uh, Will and Grace. And I was sitting there in the audience and they're like, you know, this story changed, this show changed the future of all gayness in pop culture. Never before had this ever been done. And I'm to myself like, God, I want to go, uh, you're about like five years too late because I had nine for all, I had store out way before anybody thought of putting on a show called Long Grace. So, yeah. <laughs> not that it was a great show. Just saying, you know, it's not like, uh, there had never been a gay anything until that show. Just saying. But that's actually one of the things that I thought was really cool about comics is that I always assumed that people who are TV and film execs paid attention to comics because it seemed like whatever trend that was going to happen, it actually happened in comics first. And then like TV and film execs are like, okay, you know, maybe it is okay. We go in this direction. So, but yeah, you're right. There was, I was seeing LGBT characters popping up in comics long before TV and film. And that was one of the things that brought me into comics to begin with was a representation that I wasn't seeing elsewhere. So that, that's written, you know, definitely, Kudos for introducing North Star in that regard. I know that he, w- he was always meant to be gay, but you're the one that brought him out of the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I actually wanted to ask about, which I've heard this debated a lot online, but I've never heard anyone ask you about it, uh-huh. is the <laughs> is the character of Iceman. In uh, recently in the X Men comics, he came out. I've heard people debate that you had kind of laid the groundwork for that. And I remember as a kid, even reading it, even thinking that, oh, my God, maybe he is making this character gay. Because there was like scenes where it seemed like there was some coded language, like especially after the white queen, Emma Frost, that possessed Iceman's mind. She kind of taunted him with a couple things like, oh, your first love is interior decorating. And at one point, she pulled up a uh, mental image of Opal and and uh so he was having Opal say some things like, uh, well, you never really loved me. Um, and there was, lot, there was been a lot of debate that maybe you were laying the groundwork for Iceman to come out at some points. Is is that off? Or, or? Uh, I never, I mean, like, I loved the idea that Bobby had this bigoted father that he loved, but who was a bigot. And his bigotry was not about uh, bringing home an Asian girlfriend. His bigotry was specific to uh, Bobby. The one thing Bobby couldn't change about himself, which was that he was a mutant. And you know, we had been surrounded by, you know, when you're when you're an X Men and you're with other X Men, you all have pretty much the same basic concept, which is, you know, I am me, and I, you know, you accept me, I accept. You were all mutants, and but this notion that Bobby, uh, that this guy that Bobby loved 
the most, his father, could never step around the fact that his son was a mutant, I thought was really powerful. And as an analogy to being gay, I thought it was really powerful. And so I was always drawing parallels to that because Bobby was really the only character that I knew that had a, a, a family member that was against him. Um, I think it worked well, and I certainly pushed it as, you know, you know, close to the line as I could. I mean, even that, that scene in the X-Men movie where, uh, it's like, well, could you just pretend not to be a mutant? You know, could you just for us? Um, that, you know, came, you know, it was lifted almost entirely from the comic book. And that's what I felt. And that, that's what I was doing with that character. Um, the fact that they moved that from, uh, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Subtext to text, you know, was, you know, a decision on their part, and that's great, but, you know, so so I could see why people would debate, and I could see why people would uh, uh, make arguments for either case, but I just know in my own uh, heart, the idea was to use his uh, status as a mutant to cover a lot of the same ground that, you know, gay people face uh, within their own family. And so uh, that was uh, the rationale for that. So, um, you know, so yes, I certainly did push it, but it was never, uh, if I had been on the book another 50 years, I would never have uh, come up with the idea for young Jean Grey to come in the future. <laughs> <laughs> the way they did it was a little strange, I have to admit. But yeah, I was okay. So that that's it. very interesting, very cool. Thank you. Yeah, and in terms of your writing and a lot of uh, social issues, I know it seems like there was always a lot of subtext going on, and there was some things that were 
it kind of in the background, never directly commented on, but it was it was there. And the one other thing I was kind of curious about, I was a big fan of Generation X. And one of the things about Generation X I thought was really cool, and I don't know if it was intentional, but it was a very diverse group of things, uh, different representation, different uh, races, uh-huh. uh, being the black girl. But the one thing I thought was really cool was all these stereotypes you heard it. Uh, Jubilee was the slacker, she was the Asian girl. Uh, and was the black. He had um, uh, he was uh, very studious and very smart, and it was all kind of the reverse of what people had associated as stereotypes of both races. Uh, I, mean, I, I didn't know if that was intentional or uh, just something that was accidental. You know, it's funny because I was uh, on a panel recently, and it was a diversity in comics panel, and. Uh, they said, uh, well, what do you think about diversity in comics, do you say? And I said, well, you know what? I'm glad somebody finally came up with a name for what I've been doing for 25 years. <laughs> you know, like if you look, I mean, Generation X is a perfect example. It's like, you know, there had never been a team that was like at least either mostly women or, uh, you know, it was always, you know, like, you know, Wonder Woman was like, you know, and I'm sorry, just Lee Mare was like six guys and a uh, and a girl. And yes, so the the point is that yeah, I did. Uh, I was very very conscious when I was creating Generation X to make Generation X not a book that had previous that looked like any previous book. You know, even like uh, when Chris and I were designing characters. You know, we would uh, say, "Oh, here's this character M," and you know, she's sort of like this young black older woman type, you know, character. And they're like, "Okay, well, who's the who's the Colossus of the group? Who's the Maul? Who's you know, who's the um, Thor? You know, who's the big powerful guy?" And I was like, "You know, we don't we don't really have that. We have uh, Mondo, who's this big Samoan guy, big overweight Samoan guy with a." Uh, Hawaiian shirt, and they're like, you know, they're like, okay, well, who's your who's your Wolverine character? Who's your one? He starts gonna get like really mad and like be, oh yeah, we don't really have a, a, we don't have that either. Um, so we really wanted to make the characters and make the book different from any of the any of the previous books, and so that's what we uh, worked really hard. And when it came out, I thought, wow, I told I told Chris, I said, wow, we have created. The new template that everybody's going to rip off now. For years, everybody had ripped off the X Men, you know, Wildcats, Cybercores, uh, you know, all these books. Always, 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 let's go back to that X Men template. And I said, we've created a template that people are going to steal till the end of time. And uh, no one ever stole it. <laughs> I remember when uh, they were relaunching Legion of Superheroes and they had this ad 36 superheroes. Was over DC and they go, I don't get it. It's like, you, you, this is like the most amazing superheroes in the universe. You have 36 characters and you have one black person in the group. Like, you know, you can't do better than one black person. And they're like, uh, well, you know, there's there's like a blue character and there's your. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, on their planets, they're blue and green, but like, really, you're talking about. And I remember even when uh, uh, First Mightiest Heroes, uh, I'm sorry, when. Avengers came back, and they're like, oh, uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, they're back. Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And I went in, I go, Earth's Mightiest Heroes? You couldn't find one black mighty hero on the planet? Like, 
nobody. And they said, well, you know, we're introducing this character in issue six, uh, triathlon or whatever his name is, triad or something. I don't know. But I'm like, yeah, but it's called Earth's Mightiest Heroes. <laughs> you know, you can't find one black person that's on your team with Earth's Mightiest Heroes. I don't know. It always bothered me. But what bothered me is, is that, you know, I'd be on panels and, you know, long before what you guys, uh, you know, podcasts are the big thing now, but, you know, in the old days, panels too were, um, panels were things that people really, uh, was their way to talk to the people and have people talk back to them. Now it seems every time I am on a panel, it's like, you know, coming up there going, ah, and, and this issue, click, click, and the slide goes up. Ooh, look at that cover. And they go, what's going to happen? And somebody goes, oh, I can't tell you what happens in that issue because it's a secret. What is your issue about? I can't tell an issue either because it's a secret. And you're like, you know, but back then, panels were how people, you know, communicated. And what I would, uh, I'd always be in the, uh, I'd go to these conventions and you look out and you see, you know, black people and Asian people and gay people and, you know, uh, everybody. And you think, okay, this is what comic books should look like. This should, it should be a reflection of the people and the world around. So I was always, uh, very conscious of trying to do that. So we've spent a lot of time talking about obviously the X-Men and, and now Gen X, uh, because I think it's safe to say that's really kind of Jay's and I's wheelhouse and, and, and formed a lot of our, our, who we are as people now. Um, but I want to ask you before we move off of comics and, and do a, a little touching on to, uh, to movies, what is, what has been your favorite comic to write or, or even if it's just a, a, an individual character or a team, like what, is the what's been the one that you've really enjoyed the most? Hmm. Um, certainly, the first twenty-five issues of Generation X were really special. Um, part of the reason they were special is because when somebody thinks they know the best way to do something, they'll offer their opinion on things a lot, and they'll say, "You should do this and do that, and don't do this." And da, da, da. But if they don't do it, then they're more trusting of me to uh, do it, do what I'd like to do and kind of pursue it. And uh, there are a lot of people in the X-Men office who, you know, to their, to their, uh, not credit, but to their, uh, uh, the way things work, they have to be in charge of making the X-Men work the way it should work. And I get that. But Generation X was so, such a totally different creature. And, you know, what Chris and I were able to do within the, the book, no one really understood it. So there weren't many notes. And so that was a lot of fun because it was like, you know, you just kind of, you, know, you know, Chris, uh, one issue decided to um, throw in uh, little elves in the story. Yeah. Just threw them in and he's like, here you go. And I'm like, okay. So I was like, Oh, and I'm looking at the and thinking, you know, I think I can write another and write another story inside this story using these. So, you know, try doing that on the X Men, they would have been like, well, well, um, 
so that was fun. And then also, uh, you know, in in um, the New Fifty Two, there was a lot of editorial pushback on a lot of things. They were kind of torn between this idea of like, okay, Scott, we want you to come in and reimagine things from scratch. And I said, okay. And then as the series progressed, they'd be like, well, you know, you need to bring in Trigon. I'm like, no one cares about Trigon. Trigon only has one setting. And that setting is I want to take Earth and turn it into hell. And that's never going to happen. It's like Galactus. Galactus is one thing is I'm going to come down and eat the planet. And they're like, well, okay, we know that's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> so what do you do? It always comes down to how Reed's going to stop him. And so, uh, but with uh, Rebirth, there's been a lot more freedom. And I think that people who read Red Hood now will see that there's a lot more of freedom uh, in the storytelling, which is when I'm having my most fun. But having said that, I do like when, uh, I didn't mind when, when I was writing the X-Men, uh, not that only did I not mind, I enjoyed uh, the challenge of, being part of something bigger. I will tell you a fun story about Onslaught. Have you guys ever heard the Onslaught story? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, about my about the origin of it or no? I, I mean, I know the story. I don't know the, know the story. Story. Well, this is kind of a fun thing. What happened was uh, after the uh, Age of Apocalypse, we were in a conference room and we were all sitting around and we said, if you could do one story what would you want to do? Because we were all so tied in tightly with uh, Age of Apocalypse. And, you know, Warren Ellis is like, I like to do a scene where they all go to the pub and they all get pissed, but I know you won't let me do it. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, that sounds like a great idea. You should do that. He's like, oh. Um, <laughs> and me, if you could do any story, what story would you do? And I go, I want to do a story where... Uh, the X-Men are sitting at home and all of a sudden they hear this like <laughs> and they run out to the front yard and bam, something hits the ground and skids for like a mile and slams into a tree and they all run up to the tree and they'll go, you know, and they, they look and the smoke settles and it's Juggernaut. He's just lying there and he's all bloody. And they're like, what happened? What happened? And he just says, Onslaught. Passes out. And they're like, whoa. So who's Onslaught? I, go, I have no idea, but I just think it would be so cool. That's the story I wanted. And they're like, oh, yeah, but who is he? I go, I know, but he's got to be somebody. He beat up Juggernaut. That's awesome, right? And they're like, yeah, okay. So they let me do that story. So the next month, uh, the issue comes out, and this editor approached Bob and said, hey, listen, you can't have uh, you can't have Juggernaut get beat up and not explain how he got beat up. So Bob comes to me and he goes, um, yeah, um, we have to explain who Onslaught is. I go, I don't know who Onslaught is. <laughs> and they go, he's like, yeah, but you, you need to explain it. I go, I, that's, I, I have no interest in knowing who Onslaught is. So they just like that it happened. That's all. So he's like, okay. You know, so, sometimes we argue. Sometimes he's like, okay, whatever, Scott. So um, six months, seven months go by, and there's a uh, – they decide they're doing Heroes uh, Reborn, and they have to, uh, they need a character that's strong enough that can create this, like, pocket universe for all the other superheroes, 
but uh, we're going through the list. Like, well, it's not, that's not Dr. Doom. It's not Apocalypse. We just used Apocalypse like less than a year ago. Uh, who can, we don't got anybody that can do it. And uh, then one day I was at home, I'm like, oh, and I called up, I'm like, Onslaught can do it. I mean, he beat up Juggernaut, right? He should be able to create a pocket dimension. And it, Bob's like, okay, well, that's 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 fine. Okay, but who, who is Onslaught? I don't know. So we were thinking, all right, it has to be somebody that was strong enough that could, you know, imagine this pocket universe, but would also want to keep the X-Men in place and send everybody else back. And we're like, could Professor X do that? No, but, you know, and Magneto can't do it. But what if it was Magneto and uh, Xavier together? And it's like, okay, well, that's great, but why would they work together? And then it was like, what if, what if when Xavier shut down Magneto's mind and he was great, he didn't shoot, shut down his mind, he pulled his mind into Xavier's mind. And so Magneto's been in there, like, corrupting Xavier's mind this whole time. And it's like, okay, all right, so this is Onslaught. Onslaught is a, an amalgamation of two of them. And then the fun part is you go back six months in time, if you're Onslaught and you have this power to punish your enemies and your enemy is somebody who tormented Charles Xavier when he was a kid, who's he going to go after first? Juggernaut. So it was like, it was like, uh, like uh, Hansel and Gretel, like following the breadcrumbs. You know, it was like, now you look at it and you go, oh yeah, Onslaught, everybody knows, yeah, when Onslaught showed up, he beat up Juggernaut because that's where, we're. but there was no Onslaught until there was a need for Onslaught. And those things like that, I enjoy. I enjoy like when somebody goes, well, this needs to be done. How can we do it? So that's the untold story of Onslaught. That's really awesome. Well, in, in terms of the Onslaught storyline you were talking about, it ended up tying into one of the first big mysteries that you introduced in your series, which was the X-Trader. Uh, was, uh, did you ever have a different ending or different character in mind for the whole X-Trader? Or was that something you were just kind of developing in your mind as the series went on? Well, I didn't, um, I didn't really, I mean, I scripted that issue with the first sentence of the, X Trader in it. Um, and it went, uh, and so part of that had to do with hiding the identity. Um, I'll tell you, I didn't like uh, the resolution to the Trader storyline. I don't even think I wrote it. I think uh, Mark Wade wrote it in that brief time he was there. But uh, I'm okay with mysteries. So I would have been okay with not knowing who the trader was for a few more years but everybody uh you know nowadays it's so crazy it's like you know you try to write a story and like i had a, a i did an issue recently where it opens up where uh somebody is tracking the main hero and it's like the first two pages like you see that he's and in my head it was going to be resolved in about four issues time and it was like oh no 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 i get this all the time from him. Not to, not to uh, uh, throw Rob under the bus because you know we worked it out. But um, for years, I, anytime I'd introduce a subplot, they'd go, "Oh no, no, no! You got what? What is? What is this? You got to explain who it is and why he wants and what he needs to do." And I'm like, 
in this issue? Yes. Because <laughs> readers don't like it. I, I, readers don't like mystery. Okay. You know, like when you look at, you know, when you look at uh, Ian Gray coming out of the water and saying, I'm, you know, the lightness and the darkness or whatever, you know, um, that took 36 issues to play out the death of Phoenix, you know, and when we first saw the car lights go by and we saw uh, Jason Wingard and we saw the silhouette of Mastermind behind him, you know, that was, you know, and then suddenly that, if I remember correctly, they, you know, went off into the savage land. They did all this stuff. But the thing is, is like these things uh, happen and they build. Now, do I believe for an instant that Chris's idea was that Dean Gray was going to get seduced by Jason Wingard and the Hellfire Club uh, and that that would in turn break her down so that uh, Dark Phoenix could happen? Nope, I do not believe it at all. Uh, if he ever told me that was the case, I would say, wow. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the thing is, these things happen. Like, you know, you start, you find things, and you go, oh, well, that's really interesting, and da da da. Um, you know, the first time uh, John Byrne draws the Hellfire Club, and you're like, whoa, this is something we've never seen before. Um, so all these things happen, and uh, but at the time, like, that's, you know, subplots, I think, are awesome. I would carry a subplot for years and years. You know? uh, so I don't think that was. That solution. Yeah, well, I mean, it was um, uh, Onslaught. It was Professor X, but it was as Onslaught, not as Professor X. Okay. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, the, the whole scene was, we saw in your first issue. Yeah. Yeah, we saw the scene from Jean Grey's perspective where it was broken apart, and then we saw the whole thing actually in the first part of the actual Onslaught storyline. Yeah, okay, I remember. Yeah, you know, it's funny because. Uh, we had a big argument, big, big, big argument. And, uh, you know, Mark wanted to use Xavier's crush on, uh, which happened at X-Men 3. Xavier had a crush on Jean Grey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know. <laughs> People had thoughts on that. <laughs> What's that? People had a lot of thoughts on that. I remember people talking about that for a long time. You know, and I was, I was so adamant about not ever bring it up again. I said, look, you know, and, and they would say like, I said, you know, Professor X being a pedophile is not a storyline that, you, and Mark would go, he's not a pedophile. He suppressed his feeling of being a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and this went on and on and on. And uh, I, I guess I lost that fight, but, uh, you know, maybe I started, maybe I was checking out at that time, but, but, you know, like, to me, it was like, I, I would argue, I'd say, look, Stan, this is when I was on the phone, when we used to have landline, <laughs> threw that in there, realized it was a horrible idea immediately after he did it. It was never, ever, ever, ever referenced again. And I think it's, you know, maybe this has to do, and again, no, no, I don't mean this as a slight to these guys, to like the, the Wades and Busick of the world who know every single thing that happened to every character in the dawn of time. Like, you know, maybe there is a storyline to go back to X-Men 3, you know, from uh, 40 years before. And all oh, here's a story we didn't tell. But, you know, I'd rather tell stories that we want to tell, not stories we haven't told. 
So, Scott, outside of comic books, one of the things that people may recognize your name from in more recent memory is the slasher film Happy Death Day. So can you tell us a little bit about how it was writing that and coming up with that story? Sure. I'll I'll tell you the thing that I liked most about writing Happy Death Day, and I was writing it, uh, I wrote it in, uh, I was living in Malibu at the time, and I met with a producer, and I told her, I said, yeah, I want to do the story. And she goes, well, that's great. You should write that story. And I'm like, okay. And I was done with comic book work, so I went and I turned off my phone, and I wrote it over the course of four weeks and what was funny was as i was writing it i was laughing to myself because i'm like this is the most subversive horror movie ever because people are going to show up thinking they're going to see a slasher flick and instead they're going to see this story about a girl who is a jerk who eventually becomes somebody that you're rooting for you know like when i first wanted to do it i was thinking I, you know, there's a bunch of uh, horror movies out at the time, and I was like, I should write a horror movie, but if I have to write one, I want to write one like nobody else is doing. And I said, you know, in most horror movies, the bad girl gets killed right up front, and then the good girl is running around in her underwear in the last scene, and she lives. And I was like, is there a way to, you know, is there a way to not flip it, but is there a way to make the the bad girl lived to the end like what if what if she starts out as the bad girl but in well because she's dying i guess what does it make sense she can't die and, and i'm like well what if she does what if she dies and she relives it and so she becomes a good so it wasn't like i was like sat down going i'm gonna do uh groundhog's day as a slasher movie it was like this is what i want to do with the movie how do i do it and then i was like oh i can use the Groundhog template. And what I felt was really to me in writing it was the, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed was after the movie was over and we were talking about, uh, we're talking about an aspect of the movie. Um, and I was talking to somebody and she said, well, you know, as far as credit goes, you have to be careful because like, you know, you, really just took Groundhog's Day and turned it into a slasher movie. And I said, I think I really did. I said, to me, part of the fun of the movie was the fact that there was a murder mystery. You know, if anything, it was a lot more like uh, this old movie called DOA, which I don't know if you know DOA. It opens with uh, a black and white movie. Guy walks into police station, raining, and he walks up to the front desk. He's like, I'd like to report a murder. They're like, ooh. He goes, and what you find out is that he was poisoned and now he has like 24 hours to figure out who killed him and to me part of the fun of happy death day was it wasn't just the resetting of the day like in groundhog's day and you know we've seen tom cruise's movie we've seen you know a bunch of other things we saw an episode of uh x-files where they were at a bank and it kept reliving the day and Scully kept getting shot, but what we hadn't seen was a murder mystery. Was like you know to end the day in such a way that we don't know who it is that's killing her, and that there'd be a, a bunch of suspects. You know, I mean, that, I thought that was really, really made it fun and different. So as I was writing it, I was thinking, you know, people are gonna, 
<laughs> show up because they wanted to see some girl get uh, tracked by a killer, but it turns out that it's uh, you know it's really the story about it's really a tree story, which I thought was like in like I say very subversive. Absolutely. Now, how long did it take from the time that you wrote the story till it uh, till it was able to be brought to life on the screen? Uh, ten years. Wow. Ten years, almost a day. And so, how did how did that come about for uh, for Blumhouse to to want to bring this? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? No, it had been in. Uh, it had been in. Uh, first, it was at Universal uh, Road Pictures, which I don't think exists anymore, and that was there for two years, and then it was uh, somewhere else, and then it had become a. Uh, it almost became a streaming thing. They were going to spend one hundred thirty-five thousand on it, and fortunately, that wasn't made. And then uh, Netflix was going to do it, and then that fell apart, and then. Chris, who had been attached, uh, he'd done a draft of the script years ago uh, when it was just about to go. And he wound up, uh, by that point, Chris had done like four movies with Blumhouse. So he uh, was out to lunch with that same producer who got me to write it. And he said, Where's that movie stand? And she said, Oh, you know, it's right now the rights are up in the air. And so he was like, Holy moly. So he left that lunch on a Friday and called uh, Jason and said, I have the story. And by Monday, Jason was like, Here's $5 million. Go do this movie. And so that was it. So it went from like, you know, as is often, I mean, like, you know, you always hear about things like, uh, Sopranos that got rejected by 16 studios and then on the 17th studio they're like oh, alright we'll make this and then it, you know TV history changes so um, it was really not uncommon for a movie to take a long time to sit in different uh, you know different venues but so, so that was Happy Death Day's uh, gestation period so now okay so you write this story. Ten years later, it gets made into a film. How did you like? How much control? How much say did you have in seeing the adaptation go from? <laughs> the listeners can't see that, but a big old zero. So okay, so that's actually I'm 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 actually almost even happier that that's the answer. What did you think of it? Well, I tell people all the time that the very first thing they do in Hollywood uh, when you're uh, when you sell a movie, the very first thing they do is fire the writer. <laughs> but it's true I, you know so uh, seven movies and six TV pilots over the years and the first thing they do is they just fire the writer I wrote a movie with uh, my best friend John we wrote a movie called uh, Man of the House with Tommy Lee Jones and uh, we were uh, we were rewriting it and uh, we got to page 52. They brought in a director. He had his ideas. We got to page 52 and they fired us. And then uh, I was at Hollywood Cemetery about, I don't know, 10 years later. And somebody goes, uh, he was a writer. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I wrote a movie called uh, Man in the House with Tommy Lee Jones. He goes, I got to tell you, he goes, I felt terrible. 
He said, I was in a meeting with the producer and the producer said, hold on a second. I got to make this call. And I'm sitting there and she gets on the phone. She goes, yeah, we have the writers and they're working on a draft, but we want you to write the movie. So as soon as uh, this draft is done, we're going to have you start it. And he goes, I just can't imagine what that's like to be like, seeing that working on a rewrite, knowing that they've already gotten rid of you. And I said, you know what? It's just the nature of the piece. You know, it's not anything to take personally, you know. So, But like this movie that I'm doing now, that won't be the case. You know, and even Chris's, Chris Landon's very first movie, uh, Disturbia. Oh, yeah. he, uh, you know, he wrote the script, but then by the time the script got to production, I mean, they, they, you know, fired him pretty much immediately. It's just what they do. You guys saw the movie. There's uh, in the original movie there were two characters brett and carter and brett was this uh, guy who uh, had slept with tree and she couldn't remember because she slept with so many people that she was like he's like you don't remember you in bed and she's like yeah it's in bed with a lot of people and then there's when she realized she was caught in this time loop she went to a character called carter who uh she realized kept spilling uh, chocolate milk on her every day and realized that, okay, wait a minute, that wasn't an action. This was him trying to talk to her. And he was so awkward. He was like, oh, this will be a way that I can meet her. And so he was this comic book geek who actually referenced uh, uh, Uncanny 134, the Days of Future Past issue, oh, yeah. as a way to you know, get her to realize. He even said, here, you got to go read this. Um, and so it was decided that uh, and in fact, later on in the movie, when she's about to be killed by Tombs, who oddly enough was I, I named after my uh, high school gym teacher, um, <laughs> he was uh, she was about to be killed, and up until this point, she thought Brett was a suspect until Brett saved her from getting killed. So like that, all that was there. But Chris came, when Chris came on, he was like, I think it's better if it's one character. Carter is the love interest throughout instead of having Carter as the geek and Brett as the love interest. And so, you know, that was decided. But, you know, that is, is it something that I would have done eventually because the network said, or because the studio was like, oh, do this? I might have, you know, or I might not have, but, um, but so, that's what happens. So you're looking, you know, the way I see uh, movies or, uh, you know, I've done TV pilots, I've done movies, and even sometimes in comic books, uh, is the way I see it is you um, have a kid and you raise the kid and you tell the kid not to uh, smoke and swear and have premarital sex and you love your child and then your child goes off to college and they come back and they're smoking and they're... Uh, pregnant and they're cussing up a storm, but it's still your kid and you're going to love it. And so that's how I feel about uh, Happy Death Day. You know, there are changes from the original script, but that is what happens when, you know, you hire a director and, you know, you hire characters and cast and before you know it, it's uh, its own creature. And, uh, but at the end of the day, it's still, uh, a guy sitting down at a computer in uh, Malibu 
and closing the door and turning off the phone. And that's how movies were made. Fantastic. Now, you've mentioned a couple things that you were working on. What is the what's the next big thing that you are super excited about that you want our listeners to be on the lookout and to to check out? Well, um certainly uh you know, uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws 25 got the maybe the best I want to say the best reviews in my career, but that might be because too there weren't really reviews back in the X-Men days, I'd like to think they would have been pretty good. Um, but uh, I'm really, really excited about where things are going with Red Hood. So that's exciting. I have a big meeting on Wednesday that when it happens will uh, probably keep me busy for the next 10 years in uh, movies. So that'll be very exciting. I'm pitching a, a trilogy and I'm very excited about it. And if it, uh, I will. Um, promise you that I mean the studio will have to announce it first but once the studio announces it I promise you that we'll get back on here and you'll be the exclusive uh, podcast of this uh, announcement so how's that that's awesome looking forward to that so yeah I mean the the thing about this town is uh, as you saw with uh, the 10 years of happy death day in the making is uh, I always call it it's the town of hurry up and wait (laughs) <laughs> you know, we need this on Thursday. We need you to turn in this script on Thursday, or or everything's gonna go south. And then you turn the script in on Thursday, and it's like you know a year later. We read the script, and we have some notes. <laughs> the town of hurry up and wait. So, where can our listeners keep up with uh, the goings on of uh, Scott Lobdell? Well, you answer that, Patrick, because you know that. You're on Facebook and you reviewed my movie and I swooped in. <laughs> so Scott Loved Out could be virtually anywhere at any moment on, on your Instagram feed, on your Facebook feed. Um, you know what's funny is there's a guy who, uh, there's a writer who I don't know his name, but I was at a, at a DC conference and this guy said, a very famous writer every year. He writes a manifesto about the state of writing in the industry. And five years ago, he said, if you're a writer, you have to get out there and get your face out there and you have to get on Instagram, you have to get on Facebook and you have to like really connect with people. And that's the way to uh, build your career and your following and your readership. And that's what you have to do. And then here it was, that was five years ago. Then uh, five years later, he said the guy wrote a manifesto and he said, you know what? Get offline, get off Instagram, get off Twitter and just write. That's your job. You're a writer, you should be writing. And I, you know, like if you follow my Instagram, it's the most uh, innocuous, silly uh, stuff because it's, you know, I'm not promoting my uh, work. I did kind of push. I pushed uh, Happy Death Day, but I tried to do it in the most ridiculous way possible. Like uh, I had a picture of uh, my serial killer uh, sneaking up on Thor. And it was like, Thor's coming out this weekend, but I'm telling you, Happy Death Day is going to crush him. You know, (laughs) not going to happen. 
and then the next uh, that Monday I had a uh, I had a Thor hammer just smashing the uh, the uh, Facebook uh, the the mask. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I was off by fifty million dollars, but the point is, <laughs> do silly things like that because they abuse me. But you know, for the most part, I don't. Uh, you know, like. You know, I don't know if Scott Snyder will listen to this. I don't mean this in a, as a slight against Scott, but you know, like if you look at my Instagram, there's you know, uh, uh, I don't know, four thousand people. I don't know. And you look at Scott's, and I don't know, there's sixty thousand. But there's not a. I know you guys can do the math. I don't know what the difference between. 4,060 is, but let's say it's, you know, 500 times or something. But that doesn't mean that the readership for Batman is 500 times the readership of Red and the Outlaws. So I don't really know, you know, when you really, really look at it, I don't know what having uh, 15,000 or 100,000 or, you know, and there's this guy, um, Donald Trump, who used to do real estate. And he has millions of followers now on, uh, on, uh, Twitter, I think it is. But it's not like that. Those millions of followers, uh, translate into popularity. <laughs> you know? I actually have this discussion with a lot of people. And uh, it's you, sometimes you follow someone just because you need to know what they're saying doesn't mean they're popular or well liked. I actually hate Donald Trump, and I've been I follow him just so I know what he's saying. So when my family tries to defend him or tries to praise him, I know exactly what they're talking about. I, I always tell people it's important to follow certain people just so you know what they're saying and you know how to retort, basically come back at them. Yeah, you know, I could see Scott. I mean, Scott is, uh, you know, I follow his feed. He's a great guy. But, like, you know, this notion of, uh, and, and I shouldn't say it is that that's why he's doing it. I'm not saying that he has all these followers because he's doing that. I'm just saying that, like, you know, I don't, uh, I've come to the conclusion that I'd rather just, you know, write and, uh, you know, not, not, not have a scottlovebell.com and not have a, a you know, um, anything more than that. So to answer your question in the most roundabout way possible, <laughs> you know, I don't really have a lot of uh, ways to follow me other than, you know, Leading Cole seems to have this love-hate relationship with me where they uh, are either uh, making fun of me or patting me on the I'll say it depends on who's writing the article. Yeah, and and actually, and as soon as he started talking about the uh, the way you kind of tongue in cheek were promoting it, I was like, okay, no, I remember that, and I every time it would pop up on my Facebook feed, I absolutely loved it. It was like you know just having the the serial killer like just randomly behind <laughs> different things. I was like, this is this is a hundred percent like the way that things should be done. Yeah, like and Thanksgiving, I uh, 
put the uh, serial killer's knife from the uh, billboard where you saw the knife and you saw his face in the thing. Uh-huh. And I have him stabbing the <laughs> turkey. I love it. That's at Scotty Bob Della Instagram. So if you are listening to this podcast and you haven't seen it and you want to follow, uh, you can follow it, but just don't expect anything of <laughs> any merit. <laughs> Well, it has been fantastic. Thank you again so much for taking time to sit and chat with us. It's been amazing. Uh, Jay, thank you for, for joining me on this uh, this interview episode. And no, it's been, a, it's been a big pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's, Jay, Jay, it's amazing I got to actually talk to Scott Lobdell. <laughs> Jay, listen to me. If he uh, tries to do the uh, follow-up podcast on the yeah. big announcement, and he's like, yeah, Jay. Uh, Jay doesn't really bring a lot. I'll be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, I will not go on without Jay and Ronan. Perfect. And well, Ronan, Ronan, you there? Well, I'll, I'll, but I'll try to get him here. I was going to say, um, I might not have Jay on, but I'll definitely have Ronan. Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scott Lovedell, thank you so much. One more time. It just, it's been a fantastic. Fantastic pleasure to chat with you. Imagine, imagine what it was like for me. <laughs> I got to, I got to meet both of you. You only got to meet one of me, so I had twice the fun that you guys had. Ah, oh, well, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing what this new secret project is going to be, and we look forward to having you back on once that is announced and uh, get to talk to you some more. So thank you so much, listeners. Uh, it, it, this has been fantastic. I, this is, yeah, I, I'm just speechless on how, on how amazing this has been. Hope that you've enjoyed this interview. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Make sure that you go and check us out on uh, flameonshow.com. Follow us on the social medias. Uh, if you are enjoying this and you want to become a patron subscriber, Make sure you go check out Nerdy Show's Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Nerdy Show. Become a patron. You can even earmark some of those dollars to come straight to us. And uh, yeah, that does it for us. Jay, thank you one more time uh, for being on this. Amazing. And (laughs) Scott Lobdell, thank you again. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you more. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.